millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I'll be talking to George Eaton and Anusha Kalian about Labour's plans for the railways and Tories' plans for welfare. Then Tozen Thompson, Ian Steadman and I ask whether or not we would be willing to die on Mars. And finally, slightly more cheerfully, Barbara Speed and Caroline Crampton will discuss the future of podcasts, including ours. There are less than 80 days to go until the general election and I'm joined by our political editor George Eaton and Anoush Kalian, acting editor of The Staggers, to catch up on the latest from Westminster. George, let's start off with you first. So you interviewed um, Michael Duggar this week, who is Labour's transport spokesman, and he had some, I guess it was it was, it was was meat and drink to the left of the party, certainly uh, words about the privatisation or the evils thereof of the railway system. Absolutely. So Labour's position to date has been that they will establish a public sector operator to take on private companies as rail franchises come up for renewal. Um, Duggar has uh, significantly toughened the position by saying, we want to take some of these back into the public sector as soon as possible. We're looking at scrapping franchising altogether. There might, might not be a bidding process. We think it's inefficient. It's cost money in the past. And he's also said we want public control of the railways. So it's a socialist style description of a new rail passenger body that they've promised, which will have more control over things like ticket prices, because he says at the moment it's a cosy industry stitch up and we want to... Uh, you know, do away with that. He must be emboldened, presumably, by the success of the East Coast Mainline, which was privatised, got taken back into public hands after the failure of the operator, and has had very, very good figures on punctuality and service. Absolutely. And I think, as he pointed out, you know, East Coast has returned um, returned a billion to the Treasury while it was in, in public hands, um, out, outperformed um, a lot of the other franchises. But there's a wider ideological shift uh, that, that he alludes to when he says it's not like in 1997, that whole deference to markets and the private sector has gone. And so he sees himself very much as uh, in line with Ed Miliband on that, um, in, in, in believing that New Labour was far too close to, to the private sector and far too relaxed about the markets. I think that's what I find interesting about it, because it seems to be that if you're, a, you know, whatever your ideology, you should probably take the plan of what works, right? What delivers most value to the taxpayer, what delivers most money to the Treasury. So the idea that the, the Tories are desperate to reprivatise the East Coast Main Line, even when it's proved a success, it's sort of this kind of bizarre idea that, like, I'm going to ignore actual success because it doesn't fit with my ideological preconception of what ought to be the best thing to do. 
Um, anyway, I, we, I, we could talk about rail all day and probably will one day. But um, <laughs> I just want to talk to you, Nisha, a little bit about the, the, the big theme of the week for the Tories, which has been welfare. How's that gone? Um, welfare week. You probably wouldn't know it was welfare week for the Tories because it seems to have fallen a bit flat. Um, not only did they decide to have their welfare week in this sort of recess half-term period where nothing actually happens, um, which shows that it is a bit of an after afterthought for them. They've also had it, as George pointed out in his column in this week's magazine, a week after they had this very opulent black and white gala ball that was rather controversial because of the expensive uh, auction uh, prizes that, that were that were uh, on offer there. I so they've got a real pasting, and actually from people on the right as well, rightfully about the idea that you go into an election where you're saying we've all got to tighten our belts you know the economic crisis isn't over i know the times are tough but and then at the same time to have a ball where you ask people for 1500 pounds a ticket and you sell pheasant shoots it's just like i know that there is a there is a, a problem for labor and that, that people sort of think well you just come in and turn the money taps on but they must know surely that what everybody's bad preconception of the tories is they're the the party of the rich. Exactly. The most toxic thing for the Tories is that they're seen as the party of the privileged, the party of the rich. But actually, I think it is a symptom of the optimism in the Conservative Party that they're happy to have those kind of events. I noticed it at Tory conference last year. There were so many champagne receptions. And in the two years previously, they'd, you know, they'd absolutely had well, they'd a They'd had, had a sort of an austerity thing, hadn't they? So yeah. that they? The worst thing was the idea that you get a photo of David Cameron exactly. holding a picture, a glass of champagne in black tie while saying, no, come on, we're all in this together. But that mood seems to have, have gone, which is not at odds. It's just, it is at odds with the the idea of what, what the message they're putting out on the election campaign. It is at odds with yeah what they're saying. They're saying uh, we need to cut the welfare budget because um, the spending is still too high. Um, but it is at odds with the way that they're feeling within the party, which is very optimistic about their um, chances at winning the election. And also um, they have this uh, paradoxical message that the recovery is on its way. Um, you know, the cost of living crisis is over. Uh, unemployment is going down. So there's this double think that they want people to buy into. And George, you mentioned in your column this week that actually Labour have perked up a bit from the start of the year too. Why is that? Mm. Well, I think it's they feel that the Tories have thrown quite a lot at them. They had uh, that big press conference at the start of the year on Labour spending plans. They've had um, attacks from some of their business supporters, people like Stuart Rose, the former boss of an MNS, who's now a Conservative peer. They were hoping that would really dent Labour in the polls and that their advantage, the Tories' lead on economic competence and on leadership through David Cameron, would start to spill over into, into the national polls. And it hasn't really. I mean, Labour's lead has, has remained. Uh, the Tories were hoping that January would be crossover month and that they'd move decisively ahead later. That hasn't happened. And so Labour feeling reassured by that. And then, of course, last week went very well for them with the tax avoidance row. Of course, it's become more complicated since with the row of the Ed Balls and receipts and Ed Miliband's <laughs> deed of variation on his home. Yeah. But I think Labour feel if the debate is tax avoidance and the super rich, we are going to be the party benefit because that's home territory for us. Uh, the subject is not the deficit. I mean, that really has fallen off the agenda. And that is a big problem for the Tories. Talking of things that have fallen off the agenda... UKIP and the Lib Dems have both noticeably suffered in the last mm. couple of weeks, haven't they? They're both struggling to get their messages out. Is that going to? I mean, will can you see them surging back and, and and the level of interest that we've had in them, you know, growing again? Mm. I think it'll be very hard for UKIP to recover the momentum they had last summer when, obviously, they were having won the European elections. They then had the defections of Douglas Carswell and Mark Reckless. but they will remain significant players in the debate because immigration is still one of the top issues. And they're rated as the best party on that and on Europe. And that's the first time that a protest party has owned issues in that way. 
Um, and of course, they peaked at a level much higher than people expected. So though they're not really going up, they haven't actually mm. fallen away too much in the polls. And the Lib Dems, I think, do seem increasingly irrelevant. Though the irony is that, of course, they've a far better chance of being in government than than the Greens, the Lib Dems, and 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 obviously the SNP as well, who said we wouldn't be in a, a full coalition. So in some ways, their policies deserve to receive closer attention. But I think the real problem, and one that Jeremy Brown's often pointed out, is that they don't have a distinctive message anymore, that too often it is just splitting the difference. Mm. And he says we don't pass the freshers fair test, that if a student came along hoping to be inspired and is told, well, join us because we're more economically responsible than Labour and we're nicer than the Tories. It's not exactly, it doesn't exactly make your heart leap with joy. (laughs) So I think both the left, Tim Farron and the right of the party, Jeremy Brown, do think the Lib Dems need to, after this election, have a serious think about what they stand for again, particularly in an era of multi-party politics, the rise of the Greens, the rise of the Nationalists. The Lib Dems do have to do more to stand out. Well, we'll bring you an exciting analysis of all the Lib Dem policy manifesto over the course of several hours. No, we won't do that. But we will talk more about the smaller parties because I think that's something that keeps coming up again and again this election. But for the moment, I'll say thank you very much to George and Anoush. to die on Mars? Well, it turns out quite a lot of people do. There has been a shortlisting for the Mars One project this week and we found out some of the top contenders to take a one-way trip into space. I'm joined by our science and tech blogger Ian Stedman and our new welcome scholar Tozen Thompson to talk about why anybody would want to leave Earth forever and, and never come back really. So Tozen, first of all, tell me what what exactly is, is the project? Who's behind it for a start? It's a non-profit organisation. They're, they're trying to send about 40 people to Mars to you know, live there permanently. Whether it's feasible or not is, you know, anyone's guess. I, I they're not a proper space organisation, are they? Mm. They're, they're a Dutch non-profit slash reality TV show production company, yeah. aren't they? But that, I find that so fascinating because there are various different projects we've talked about before about going to Mars. So Elon Musk is very keen. He's got this saying that he says, I want to die on Mars, just not on impact. Yes. <laughs> Which is, I think a reasonable ambition to have yeah. um we talked about, about another project they were talking about how they wanted to send a middle-aged couple on the basis that you know you, a mars mission is going to take you a couple of years and and really if you're going to be trapped on a very i mean you know if, if you've lived in a student house you'll know the sheer hell of other people <laughs> and imagining oh, yeah. that traveling through space over the course of a couple of years is, is truly terrifying um ian though even though this project I would suggest is probably these people are not going to go to Mars. Mm. What's the likely time frame for somebody going to Mars? Well, I'd say the likely time frame uh, at or around 2030, because that is NASA's target. And as we know, they're an actual organization that has a history of landing people on things. Um, whether that's going to be pushed back, I mean, there is, you know, a, a, a reasonable possibility that might be pushed back further. But that is at the moment what they're aiming for is that. Um, they'll land someone on the moon again, they'll land someone on an asteroid, and then when they're done with that, they'll land some people on Mars. And But NASA, crucially, wants to get people back. They don't want to do it unless they can get people back again. Whereas people like uh, organizations like Mars One, are, are they're in it really... They want to be first. Like that That's the key thing. They're, they're interested in... Well, Elon Musk wants to colonize, but I think Mars One is really just like, we want to see that we can do it, because... Because once you get there, you're not getting back again at current technology. I know, which I kind of, I don't, I mean, I think 
space exploration is is really wonderful and it kind of one of those things that makes you feel slightly weepy about the you know the, like the, the majesty of the human spirit but equally well unless there's a sort of a point to it it just feels a bit like i feel like how about about people climbing everest now right you know the way that's become incredibly commercialized and it's just so that you can say that you've done it mm. what's the point in that i don't know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna, I'm not gonna <laughs> ask you to explain to well, me why uh yeah, I feel um, if they do go to Mars, people might eventually lose interest because of what's, it's been done. Mm. Like the Apollo mission, when they were on the moon, they were all everyone's all excited. But after a while, people are like, oh, you know, yeah. Moon schmoon. Yeah, yeah, moon schmoon. <laughs> and I feel like if they do, if they ever, you know, you know, inhabit Mars, it would just be a thing of the past. And people will, you know, as humans, we want to, you know, look out and find new things that, you know, fascinate us. We might, you know, mm. decide that Mars isn't isn't really a target anymore and might want to go to you know pluto for example oh, which isn't a real planet anymore yeah <laughs> sadly i wonder also if it's a kind of a, a, a part of the fact that there's been increasing realization that the rest of space outside the solar system is so unbelievably unattainable that you know i know this is a really banal statement but the universe is really really big and the distances involved are really really yeah. large <laughs> and just in terms of a human lifespan at the moment there is no conceivable way of us getting no no but, but at the same time the there is the threat that we will, you know, kill ourselves as a species um, through some extinction event or something else will come along, like an asteroid that we can't stop or we don't see until it's too late. So there is um, the school of thought that colonizing Mars at other places like the moon and some of the moons of Jupiter, for instance, it's an insurance policy. It's mm. a way for us to make sure that if something does happen back on Earth, there are there's a large enough breeding population, you know, living in caves on, on Mars or wherever. Um, or in, in the clouds of Venus or in space stations somewhere that they can kind of come back after a few years when the nuclear dust is settled. Oh, and, that's a, a cheery thought. One of the things I think um, is really interesting when you talk to astronauts, she says swankily, having talked to a grand total of three astronauts, I think probably for a piece I wrote a while ago, is that you begin to realise the sheer difficulty of doing anything in space. You, mm. you know, um, So it starts off with the fact that, you know, the way that gravity acts on our skeletons, for example, they have a huge problem with loss of bone density. And you can wear a kind of harness, really, that sort of shoves you down onto a treadmill. But um, Chris Havfield says you never get that pelvic girdle that you mm. can't. There's no way, apart from load bearing, to exercise that so it takes you you know you have all these great pictures of, of astronauts landing when they come back down on the capsule and they will do the thumbs up and that's because that's like the only thing that they can yeah. do at that point because it must it, feel like a huge crushing weight and the, the rescue uh the, the rescue teams that go and meet them in the, like the forest of siberia or wherever they will carry them like and it looks like oh they're just they're astronauts they're awesome. all right no they can't walk that's that's why they're, they're being carried yeah um and also there's so let's tell me a little bit more about what's mars like for if you want to go there on your holidays uh, well, the gravity's not a strong for a start so all those issues we, we don't know what would happen to humans who lived died bred and had children and generations of children on mars like would they end up really tall or or would they end up taller but weaker or, or whatever we don't really know what's going to happen there if you were born on um, mars presumably you could probably never come home i mean not that it would be home probably you. unless you were extremely physically fit because mm. the the change in gravity would be pretty intense yeah, about two percent less so if you weigh 100 kilograms here you weigh about 38 there 
Yeah. So yeah, this That's would be a great way to technically lose weight because I know you wouldn't lose weight; you'd lose <laughs> yeah. mass. But no, no, you lose. You would lose you, more, yeah. Well, you <laughs> you'd have to. I'd have to I would get on the scales and it would yeah. say less, and you, that was I, the important. My thing guess would be that you'd lose bone density and also muscle density because you don't need as strong mm. muscles um, to to do stuff. I mean, you'd have to like really try to build up resistance. Funny enough, um, the temperature is not such an issue. It's about minus sixty. It's on... kind of like living in Antarctica. And we yeah. can handle that. It really fluctuates. Mm. I think um, up in, you know, the poles, it can, you know, drop as low as 183 degrees, whereas in the summer in the equator, it's about 20 degrees. So I think the huge, you know, drastic difference in temperature obviously isn't very good for humans. We were very fragile and, you know, delicate creatures. I don't think we could handle such, you know, transitions in temperature. The radiation's not good either, is it? Yeah, and that also causes a lot of humidity at night as well, which isn't good. That yeah. makes it very hard to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you can't really leave the window open either. That's the other problem. And um, it has terrific dust storms as it well. It does. These, last for days. With these yeah. big particle dust devils, or that they call them. Yeah, it, it really is. Trying to live on Mars is... Um, well, we've all seen Total Recall. It's going to be worse than that, um, really. <laughs> the original, not the remake. That's a terrible film. And um, I think one of the things that actually you could do, which just isn't very exciting if you want to do something like this, is you could do... Some of the things that the, the Russians have been doing, for example, about just putting people in a can and making them live there for a really long time and not, you know, le- letting them have anything that, from the outside. And ditto people living on Antarctica. Because yeah. one of the things I think that's really underexplored is that you could solve all the technical problems. And I'm sure, you know, given the rate of human progress, we will. Can you ever solve the psychological problems of what mm. it's like to lock people up in a tiny space together? Because there was a big fight. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In, the, in one of the simulators and, and people end up sort of like having to put locks on their doors and yeah. it's not, you know, if you get if you get locked in a can, tin can with somebody, I mean, yeah, again, talking about films, we've all seen yeah. like sunshine. If yes. somebody looks into the sun. Uh, too long. It yeah. doesn't go well. I, I imagine there's a lot to be learned here from looking at the narratives that came out of early colonial settlers in places like Australia or, or, or the Americas who often went off knowing they would never return home and they were going to a place that had very few people on it and it was at the time a very inhospitable environment the technology at the time we didn't have refrigeration for instance you know there are some serious technological issues to overcome at that period um and I, uh, but you... what we really need in that situation is to have people who already live on mars like native marsians who yes. have actually because that's one of the things that colonial settlers never did was they never actually took the time to speak to people who'd been living in that on, on um, yeah. for example the aboriginal australians but yeah, we can't really, unfortunately, unless we, we find Martians uh, yes. and they're not microbes. <laughs> hey, fingers crossed, we might still do. <laughs> Let's hope we don't step on any. We arrive, lower the drawbridge and squeeze it. Um, Tosin, would you would you go into space? Oh, no. And never I'm come not. back? My feet are firmly placed on planet Earth, thank you very much. <laughs> I'd love to go to space. I'd probably chicken out at the last minute and <laughs> run away while it was in the spacesuit or whatever in a kind of hilarious 
You have to sketch, be in the space but, suit for like 12 yeah. hours on launch day. I'm just putting this out that this yeah. is already a problem, that I, you have I, to wear a nappy on I launch just, day. I'd get an itch and I'd feel like it's, it's, it's like, just cancel launch, I have to itch it. Um, <laughs> I'd also, I'd also like, I'd volunteer if it was like, hey, do you want to live on the moon for nine months in a kind of Antarctica type research slash mining operation? I'd go like, yeah, that could be an experience, but um, not Mars. Okay. Not Mars. Well, um, I would love to hear from anybody who would take that one-way journey because i think to me it's something that's yeah i get panicked on the on the northern (laughs) line um but for the moment i'll say thank you very much to tozen and ian a meta podcast now as we are going to talk to you a little bit about what podcasts we like uh caroline crampton joins me along with barbara speed because they like podcasts um i'm going to start with the the elephant in the room the absolute beer moth which is cereal pro or anti-cereal um i was pro i enjoyed listening to it um it was a great story it was if for people who don't know although if you're listening to a podcast you probably do um this american life um a public radio station uh program in america uh produced their first spin-off show which was a single investigation into a sort of cold case crime in baltimore um and they did it over 12 episodes i think um and it was a massive hit. Lots and millions of people downloaded it. And it prompt what I didn't like was what happened afterwards, which was the the conversation, particularly on American news websites, about how woo podcasting is a thing now. Serial has brought back podcasts. Podcasts did not go anywhere. Uh, certain journalists had just forgotten they existed. That That's the thing. I've always sort of I've had a kind of pro podcast bias, I guess, because there was a phase about two years ago when everybody was instructed that video was the future. And this Mm. was a kind of thing that was entirely driven by advertising. So you can sell pre-roll videos of 30 seconds um, for incredibly high rates, really, compared with display advertising, on the belief that, as is this always sort of naive and optimistic belief, that people will watch anything because it's sort of like the internet in it. (laughs) And the problem was, I felt, that a lot of people didn't have the resources to put into videos. And it's a bit shady, really, just to put your own advert in front of something you've nicked off YouTube. So there was this sort of outcrop, really, of, of people doing terrible, terrible video that involved someone sort of either sort of sitting at their desk boringly explaining something to you, or some people in a kind of shed um, <laughs> doing something with ping pong balls. And um, whereas actually, when you've got a small budget as a news organisation, video isn't, you know, you have to... To compete with Sky News, you have to put a lot of money. That stuff costs a lot of money. And it's quite difficult to do any kind of uh, video recorded stuff. Whereas, you know, radio recording and podcast recording, you've got some decent mics, you've got a decent amplifier, you know, you've got a basic garage band on a Mac. You can produce something that sounds relatively interesting. So to me, it was always, podcasts were always a better thing to do alongside rather than, you know, if you didn't couldn't set up a specialist video division. Mm. And am I? Is this is this cruel and wrong, Barbara? Do you have? Are there any? Are you one of these young people that watches all the videos on Vice? No, I no, I don't. I don't actually like watching videos online. I don't, I don't know why. But um, I think podcasting is good and it is a lot cheaper. Um, however, I'd say that the sort of advances in podcasting are towards much higher budget, much fancy. I mean, even Serial, they had like what four people working full time on that for over a year. Yeah, and it was only twelve episodes long. Um, and again, I mean, the kind of the big podcasts in America, quite high budget there. Um, they pull in like news teams from local radio stations around the country. They have a huge resource with that. Um, but I think you're right. I think you can do something successful on a much lower budget. And it's not 
cringy and it doesn't have bad lighting. But there is, <laughs> there is I think there's definitely something in that, that the, um, where the, what is really reassuring is where the money goes in podcasting is on the expertise and the journalism mm. and uh, the editing and the hard work on the content, basically. It doesn't go on the cameras and lights and the sort of window dressing of it. Well, that's one of the things that I feel a lot about Serial is an example of, or well, This American Life, is, is that the, the, the collaging technique that they used to put together to tell the stories is actually incredibly labour-intensive. Mm. And mm. sort of Serial is kind of like, and then we found the person that had been working at the store in 1999, and you think... Like just that one sentence has, you know, days and days of boring, old-fashioned journalism, looking through phone books and court and records. All, as well. all yeah. the um, because it was America and they video and record a lot of their court sessions and police interviews and they make them available to the public. Someone had watched hours, days of footage in order to find fifteen seconds of the perfect summation of the case from the prosecution but it wore that very lightly and and i think one of the things so this american life is is kind of the the granddaddy of Mm. these things i suppose it's um which spawns cereal it is a bit sometimes a little bit do-goodery and smug i think we're probably going to have to say that yeah absolutely but also the thing that frustrates me about it a bit is that it hasn't changed in 10 years the internet has changed, the world has changed, this American life has not changed. But what it does that I like is that it jams together things that seem quite different into mm. a theme. So there was a recent episode where they had Lindy West, who used to work for Jezebel, talking about um, confronting a guy who had trolled her online by pretending to be her father, who had recently died of lung cancer. But also on that same episode, it had um, the story of how, I think it was ospreys in the National Park, and there was a camera that was on the osprey nest, and the mother osprey turned out to be really bad at parenting, and was like, <laughs> one of the chicks and not feeding but the trouble was that people got really outraged about this and were like wanting to basically sort of like call social services on the osprey but that doesn't exist because nature is really cruel and sometimes ospreys are not good mothers um but it linked together because it was exactly the same thing that they started then hounding the park ranger saying you know intervene in the osprey situation um and and actually that i i like that model of here is a, a theme and we're going to knock it about and look at it from several different ways, which again is, I guess, because podcasts are more sprawling. Not our podcast, obviously, which is incredibly tightly edited and every word is a yeah. gem. But you know what I mean? It's certainly, for me, I enjoy doing radio far more than TV because you can say sometimes more than three sentences at a time. Mm. But tell me about these fictional podcasts not that you listen to. Um, well, so what you were just saying, the brilliant thing about podcasts is that Anyone can start one with a very small amount of tech. Um, And so therefore you've got, there are podcasts available on pretty much any subject that you can think of, um, including uh, creative writing and fiction. Um, I suppose the probably the most well-known example is called Welcome to Night Vale, which is a, um, it's, it's again an American production. We should come on to why so many of these big ones are American in a second. But um, Night Vale, it takes the form of, broadcast from a community radio station in a fictional town called Nightvale, and so it's all read from the point of view of the newsreader who's doing local notices telling you about what happened at the parent teacher association telling you about planning things apart from this town seems to be i don't know on, on a rift in the space-time continuum or something because terrible dystopian things keep happening there but it's all told in this incredibly mundane like bbc local radio almost type way and there are recurring characters and things that happen um, multiple times and different effects they do with sound. And it's just really compelling. Um, and that 
kind of storytelling, I think you can only do that with a podcast. I can't really see how that would work anywhere else. Well, let's talk about the the British thing because, I mean, when I thought about what my favourite podcasts are, actually what I really, when I talk about podcasts that I like, I'm really talking about Radio 4 factual programmes that are available as a download. Mm. So I'm a big fan of Great Lives, which is hosted by Matthew Paris and kind of gets somebody relatively great and good to nominate a random historical figure that they really like. So they'll do kind of like Lucretia Borgia. Um, and then, you know, next week it'll be Jacqueline Dupre. And then there's all the politics output, like Week in Westminster and things like that gets converted to, to podcasts. And then I know you're a big fan of things like Cabin Pressure and mm. stuff like that, which are all available. Have we got the same problem that news websites have often complained about, which is that having the BBC as a huge free provider distorts the market and actually means that there's no appetite for independent producers? I don't think there's no appetite, but I do think it's it's harder to get recognised because not only is the BBC producing a load of great stuff, they were also in on podcasts really early. They were They were early adopters. And so I think for a lot of British people... Like like you say, when they think of podcasts, they do think of well. Then I go to the BBC. There, I mean, if you in the the top ten on iTunes, often like three or four of them will be different BBC ones. Um, they really do dominate. But um, part of the problem, if you do want to do an independent podcast in Britain, is because is that um, that there isn't the money, there isn't the sort of the advertising, the funding and the sponsors because there hasn't been that market so the people who are doing independent podcasts in Britain, there's a great one called Answer Me This, um, new one called The Illusionist um, by Helen Zaltzman who I've interviewed in this week's magazine um, have launched, their money is coming from America, they are joining up with American podcasters um, and attracting the same sponsors as they are so they're kind of working off the American scene even though they are based in Britain, I don't know what you think Barbara Um, Yeah no I think that sounds about right really uh, do you have a, do you have a... any British podcast that you listen to because I, I can't think of any to mind is, is the bugle mm. which is John Oliver and Andy Zaltzman's mm. one but and it's quite sporty and that was um the, the Times initially funded that mm. um I think back in sort of 2006 seven when news organizations were kind of dipping their toe into the water of podcasts and then they they went independent after they said some stuff about phone hacking that uh turned out to not be very popular with their their funders and they they did i suppose it i suppose it's crowdfunding although they didn't go through anything like kickstarter they just said hey listeners we've sort of been sacked if you want us to keep doing this you're gonna have to chuck us some money and people overwhelmingly did and they're still going five years later um but i think that's the interesting point is that so much of the crowdfunding thing it seems incredibly democratic on the surface but what you often get is people leveraging existing yeah. platforms so it becomes easy for you know zach braff to fund something when people have already seen him in mainstream hollywood movies or it's easier for the people behind mm. the bugle i mean i wouldn't say it's easy but it's easier they're both stand-up comedians they have existing audiences john oliver used to be on the daily show you know they've got an audience but the um the problem well, not a problem, but it's interesting that there are very few full-time podcasters in Britain. In America, there are people like Dan Savage and Roman Mars are podcasters. That is what they are known for. But um, here, people are comedians first who also do a podcast, or journalists first who also do a podcast, or whatever. And even the, the content itself can go from being one thing to being another. I mean, just like radio shows ending up as podcasts, or, mm. I mean, The Guardian long reads now are released as podcasts. And they're quite good, but they don't do anything with it beyond just reading out the long Well, The Economist feature. do this crazy like... thing where they hire actors to read out the whole mm. of The Economist, and, and like, unfortunately not in 
not in like and lo did Yanis <laughs> Varoukis come to the Eurozone. But um, but you know, but that's that's the things that I I would love to know what is the best way of encouraging more creativity in podcasts because like you say that when you're talking about that sounds to me like that's somebody who's found a a kind of a comic conceit and a kind of dramatic conceit that is best expressed through the podcast mm. form and therefore there is more potential there but have we got a way for that to happen for them to encourage the next one of that to happen i think there's also a kind of um there's a bit of a a myth around podcasting and and also to a lesser extent blogging that it's something quick and instantaneous that you just whack it up and then you become internet famous sort of thing whereas actually you have to work very hard at it and do it consistently for a long time in order to build up the kind of audience that will then fund you or whatever you need them to do um that it's yeah it's it's hard graft and not necessarily all that fun like life (laughs) i thought you were going to say unlike this podcast which is super awesome fun always to make but this idea that you can just like open your macbook talk into the speaker and then become yeah but in vlogging you can do that like i sometimes try and watch these kind of massive youtube stars and i think it's all right, but you know, a bit of editing wouldn't go amiss. But they do a lot of it, and they do it over a long time, and they build up a story and all that sort of stuff. It's not also, like oh, one off. When they get really big is when they start having guests who are famous, either from that community or not, and they do do editing, which might I think there's a kind of a trend for stuff looking amateurish because it emphasises your normal person. But actually, yeah. they are editing it to be like that. They have like bloopers at the end of their like show reel and stuff, and it's kind of like. That might be the effect, but I think the really successful ones sit all day thinking of creative ways to do a In a way, I think it's a, it's a thing that I'm surprised about is that people have... Because one of the things that joys for me is podcasts is it's something I can listen to when I'm walking to work, for example, right? Whereas a, a video demands your full attention and you can't do anything else at the same time. So maybe this is a story about how young people have actually got excellently long attention spans mm. because they can do that. Whereas us people in our you know later 20s and 30s, we, 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 we don't chuck with that we need to kind of have something else going on we need to be twin screening and listening to a podcast as well well i'm sure no one none of our listeners i'm sure we're doing anything other than listening to every pearl that we've been offering them um please do tweet us if you have any suggestions for for podcasts just tweet at new statesman um but for the moment i'll say thank you very much to both caroline and barbara been listening to the new statesman podcast presented by me helen lewis and produced by anna leskovitz you can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on itunes our theme music is devil with the devil by the underscore orchestra licensed under creative commons Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.